Speaking from Romans 12, we're preaching a, a short, brief version. <laughs> I'm always preaching a short version, but we're preaching a brief version on, uh, it'll hit you after a while, <clears throat> on the cross and what difference the cross makes to our lives and to history. This morning I want to talk about what a difference it makes to the relationship that we have with our enemies. Now, I want to begin by saying it's not very convenient for us to think of ourselves with enemies, and very few people think of themselves as having enemies. At the end of this message, I'm going to give you an application uh, that I want you to write down on a card what is your next step toward your enemies. And the guy sitting beside me in the first service leaned over and said, I don't have any. And I thought, well, that's great to think that he doesn't think of anyone as his enemy. But we all have people who at least temporarily cross us. And we all have people who work at cross purposes toward us. And whether or not you want to call them your enemies, they are in effect working against you, battling against you. And so all of us have people like that. Now, you don't have to call them your enemies if you don't like to. That's a biblical term. Um, call them something else, but it's the same thing. So during this message, I want you to, to let the Holy Spirit reveal to you who you have yet to deal with in your life that may be an enemy. Now let me tell you, as you well know, there's a distinct difference between the way people treated their enemies in the Old Testament and the way they treated them after the cross, after the life of Jesus. In the Old Testament, there was a stance taken that was right, that was good, that was just, and that was plain but was also exclusionary. That is, the way that you dealt with your enemies in the Old Testament was that you either conquered them and made them your converts, or you cut them off and wished them ill. All for the glory of God, of course. All so that God's holiness could be justified and exalted and glorified. Holiness, hagaios, means to separate. So, in the Old Testament, there was emphasized the righteousness of God. And it was quite all right to wish your enemies ill and to live in separation from your enemies for the glory of God. Let me give you just a couple of passages that you can muse over, and I will read these to you. The first one comes in Psalm 58, the next one in Psalm 59. I just opened the Bible. This is rife throughout the Old Testament. This kind of language, this kind of talk for the enemies. Some people, when they become Christian, can't imagine the same God being the, the God of the Old Testament the God of the New Testament. Well, it's just two different emphases. And there has not been revealed the God of grace yet at least not fully, through the life of Jesus Christ. So let me just read a few of these verses for you. That David, the warrior, and this also points out the difference between the mentality of a warrior and the mentality of a savior. David, the warrior, 
wishes for his enemies. 58 verse 6, O God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Verse 8, let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Now look at verse 10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. Remember what 1 Corinthians 13 says? Love does not rejoice in the wrong, but rejoices in the right. The righteous will rejoice when he sees vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Psalm 59, verse 5. And thou, O Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. <laughs> Do not be gracious to anyone who are treacherous in iniquity. Look at verse 13. Destroy them in wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more. Oh, there, was a God who's, there was a guy whose heart was after God. There was a guy who loved the Lord. Kind of ticked, didn't he? We well, see, in the Old Testament, all of that was to pr prove the primacy and the righteousness of God. And so the mentality was not wrong. But it was not fully right. Because we see a different man and hear a different voice from the cross as he looks on his enemies. And what does he say of them? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. A different mentality, a different heart, a different grace, if you will. There is something in us that wants to hold on to the Old Testament. Something in us that still wants to see our enemies crushed and doesn't want God to have his space. We'll take care of it. Thank you very much. We're going to beat them enough so that when they come to you, we've already had the vengeance. I watched a news clip last night of the anti-porn group that had gathered in front of the Volusia County Courthouse to support John Tanner. And taking into consideration that the media goes after the most flamboyant and often the most negative in the, in the Christian movement, Still, there was a handful of anti-censorship people who were marching through the crowd with their signs. Now, two weeks ago, the anti-censorship group met the same spot with the same number of people, with the same intensity. But as these people who were marching through this crowd with what they believed to be right... The cameras panned on these Christians who were saying, Wicked, wicked, turn from sin. You're going to burn in hell. 
Old Testament. Isn't it fine when you get scared to be able to yell? That's not theology, that's therapy. There's a difference. That's not the love of God. <laughs> I mean, it's right, and you can you cannot call it technically incorrect. Although you have absolutely no, uh, just because a person is anti-censorship, you have absolutely no insight into their theology uh, or where they're going. After you know, you need a little bit more information about that. Neither do you have much uh, uh, of an insight if you're just against pornography. What your theology is. That's not a good enough basis, but the thing that I'm trying to get at is that you could take any six-year-old and put them in front of that television screen and say, does that man love that other man? Then the six-year-old will say, no, he hates that other man. Is that man confident and happy and joyful? No, he's mad. See? You see what I'm getting at here? We love... The Old Testament style because it lets us get our jollies as far as, as um, uh, catharsis goes. But we're still not into New Testament theology yet. The cross made a difference in the way we would treat people. The cross made a difference in how far we would go. Now, one thing I want to say to you before I get to what I consider the unspoken uh, part of this message, or the, the unspoken as of yet part of this message, the new part, is that I am not going to stand up here and tell you stuff you already know. You already know it's stupid to hate. You already know if you carry a grudge for an enemy, it is you who suffer. You already know that. You already know who pays internally for your stance against other people. If you've ever had an enemy in your life and they have ever occupied your attention, you'll know that that was not a pleasant experience and that that was not something that God would have you live out. You know that. I heard, I read a story one time about a New York millionaire, millionaire, Joseph Richardson. Supposedly, this is a true story. He owned a plot of land, a narrow plot of land between houses in a neighborhood. And he thought to himself, he was a greedy, he was not a Christian. He thought to himself, those people have to buy that plot of land from me or else I'll just let it grow up in weeds and it'll tear their property value down. So he asked an exorbitant amount for it. And they wouldn't give it to him. Meanwhile, there had been passed in the town a law that said you could not devalue other people's property. Indeed, if there was a property, you either had to keep it nice or live on it. So he built in that narrow piece of property a house five feet wide. And because he had to have somebody live in it, he went and lived in it himself for years, kept it in disrepair in order to bring the neighbor's property values down. For years, he himself was confined in a little five-foot-wide ugly house just to get back at people who wouldn't pay his price. Now, isn't that stupid? Aren't 
we stupid when we do the same thing for people who won't pay our price to live in a little narrow five foot house so that they may feel bad? We know the common sense of holding a grudge. We know the freedom of forgiveness. So I'm not going to preach that to you this morning. I do, however, want to make a point in this particular scripture reading. I do want to say to you that along with all of these practical instructions, you know, bless those who persecute you. Jesus did the same thing. You've said, uh, for Matthew 5, 43 and 44, you know, you've heard it said, love your neighbors, hate your enemies. I'm saying to you, hate your, or love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the same thing here. In verse 14, bless those who persecute you. By the way, a blessing is not, <laughs> doesn't come at the end of a sneeze. It is an actual verbal hope that is voiced to someone. When you have a blessing in somebody's life, you say, I wish for you long, fruitful life. I wish for you peace. I wish for you happiness. This is something that actually comes out of your mouth. It has power when people receive it. It has an activity in their life. So a blessing isn't just a good feeling. Well, I hope they make out all right. You know, it's, it's actually something done. And you read those and, and all of those are, are practical. Never pay back evil to anyone. Verse 17, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Another way of saying that is respect all men's perception of right. Wow. That's something Christians don't often do. I mean... Isn't it wonderful that people obey what they believe is right, even if it's not totally right? I mean, isn't that going in the right direction? Couldn't we find a peace to admire there? Okay. And then if so far as it is possible as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. The literal Greek means seek peace. Seeking peace. And so therefore, it is not something that, that you, you just hang out and stay calm. That's not what be at peace means. It means you actually look for a way so that there is no conflict. Now here's the bottom line. Look at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Is that something that you can do if you are absent from your neighbor? Is that something you can do, or your enemy, is that something you can do if you are not present to let your good spill upon a person that you have heretofore wanted to cut off and exclude? Don't you have to include those people in your future in order for good to overcome evil? That's the point we don't think about very often. We know about forgiveness. If I can just forgive and run, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be at peace. If I can keep my distance and have a good enough feeling, then I'll be okay. What about this? What about if God commands you to make a place in your future for that person? Did not Jesus do that on the cross for his enemies? 
Isn't that what he was doing? Did he just say, okay, they're forgiven, I'm out of here? No. He did that so that he could be near his enemies all their life long. Let me, let me show you something in, in Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. This is the end of the book. This is the end of the book here. The end of time. And Jesus is saying to the church at Laodicea in verse 15. I know your deeds. That you are neither hot nor cold. I would that you were cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm though. And neither hot nor cold. I will spit you out of my mouth. Now that's kind of the word for an enemy, isn't it? That's kind of at cross purposes with Christ, wouldn't you say? Read further. Because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. You do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now look what he offers him. Look what he's still open to. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich. And white garments that you may clothe yourself. That's righteousness. And that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. And now one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. Spoken to his enemies at the end of time. At the close of their life. At the close of the chance that they have. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice. Who's cut off here? Nobody's cut off. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Let me tell you something. There's something in the plan of God. There's something in this for your life that says, don't cut off the people you think you need to cut off right now. Make some provision for them in your future because if God's kingdom comes, you're all going to be living together. And guess what? In Jesus, God's kingdom has come. Even if you are natural enemies, the love of Christ makes it necessary for you to live together. Look in, I, I love the uh, Isaiah passage. Look in, in uh, the 11th chapter of Isaiah. It's the, it's the passage to predict the coming of Jesus. One of the passages to predict the coming of Jesus. You talk about natural enemies. Read this with me. Starting with verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The wolf will live with the lamb. You talk about natural enemies. One devours the other fears. Natural enemies. And the leopard will lie down with the kid. With the small goat. And the calf and the young lion. And the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. That's Jesus. And the cow and the bear will graze together. Would you ever see a bear graze? <laughs> but he does. He gets berries and so on and so forth. There he does. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. Oh, I could never 
sit down at a table and eat the same way that they eat. I, I could never break bread with them. Think if you were lying and had to eat straw. That'd be tough. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth of the Lord will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. <laughs> I love it. For those who know God, nothing is impossible. It is not as neat as just cutting your enemies off. It is not as neat as planning a future where you don't have to face your enemies. There is something infinitely more of a witness here in store for you. And that is building a future that can include your enemies. If there's even the breath of a chance to include your enemies. You saw that from time to time in the Old Testament. Esau, as he went to his brother Jacob, and Jacob was quaking. Here comes Esau. This is, verse, uh, or this is uh, chapter 33. Here comes Esau in Genesis. Here comes Esau, who is 400 men strong. You know how Esau is. He's a man of the outdoors. And there's a weenie Jacob. You know, he was a, you know, kind of a, dece- kind of a deceiver. He was a deceiver all his life. Do you think Jacob has repented? The guy is still a boogerhead. I mean, after, honest to goodness, after Esau comes to him, listen to what he does. Somebody defiles his daughter and he gets mad. And, and well, he should. This is an idea for some of you guys who have women. And he, in order for, for uh, these people to intermarry with the children of Jacob, I mean, Jacob's really angry with this guy. And the guy says, well, I tell you what, if you have all your men circumcised, tell you what, then maybe we'll intermarry. So here's, here's all these guys going through this painful operation, laying down three days in pain. And when they've, when they've hurt where they live for three days, then Jacob's men go in and kill them all. Now, he couldn't, he couldn't have killed them all right at the beginning. He had to make them hurt where they live for three days. This guy's a boogerhead, I'm telling you. He's a deceiver. He's still a deceiver. And you know what happens? When Esau comes to Jacob and Jacob goes, <laughs> Esau wants to make a future for them together. It's not that Jacob has become better. It's that Esau still loves. Look at Joseph in the 45th chapter. With all of these brothers who have tried to do him in. And all that he had to go through. He still loves. He still loves. And he builds a future for them together. And Egypt says bring my father down. I don't care what you did. It wasn't you but it was God working his purpose in you for my life. Can you say that about your enemies? It is not you. It is God working through you for his purpose in my life. Can you say that? I hope you can. I hope you'll be able to someday if you can't say it right now. But that's what he says. Look, we're open for the future here. You know one of the most curious statements in all the Bible is the second to the last verse in the book of Philippians. And it says this, All the saints greet you, especially those of the household of Caesar. Now, think about that for a minute. Caesar 
was not a family name, it was a title of the emperor of the Roman Empire. It was the title of the person who set in motion the political machinery that destroyed Jesus Christ. All of the saints, all of the Christian brothers greet you who are in the household of Caesar. Not only that, but by this time, the Caesar may well be Nero. Now think about this. Nero was one of the most sadistic persecutors of Christians that ever lived. He used to tie Christian children up in skins of animals and set dogs loose on them so that the dogs would chew through the skin and then chew through the children. He would spread pitch over the bodies of Christians and impale them on stakes and light them and put them up as lanterns for his garden. All the saints greet you, especially those of the household of Caesar. Here are Christians who are living good lives among the evil of the day. Well, you say it won't work. Nero was never converted. No, Nero got his. But 200 years later, there was a Caesar. And for those 200 years, those Christians, one after another, propagated in that household. And 200 years later, there was a Caesar whose name was Constantine. And he met the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the empire was ushered toward the religion of Christianity. Because finally, good overcame evil. Do you understand why God wants you to live in the midst of your enemies? Why God wants you to deal with them? Why God wants you to build a future to include them? Rick Eldridge said at the at the beginning of the, or the, the end of the first service. I didn't even think of this. But he said, you know, a lot of Christians cannot understand why I work where I work. He's a guy in the upper echelon at Universal Studios. And he said, that's exactly why I work where I work. So that God is never without a witness where I work. Do you understand how important it is not to escape the pain, but to face what God could be doing in your life and what God could do in other people's lives because you haven't run, because you haven't cut them off? Well, right now, I want you to take, there are um, index cards in your, somewhere in your pew or chairs, or rows, or whatever they are. Index card. Everybody get an index card. And as many writing utensils as you can 
pull out of the hat. You can use the pencils and the registration pads, please put them back or whatever. While I listen, or while you listen to this music, John Michael Talbot tape, before our closing song, I want you to pray and ask God to reveal to you someone who is at cross purposes in your life right now. And then I would like for you to ask him to give you something to do within the next week or so that will let you seek peace in that relationship. That will let you begin to build a future that includes both of you. You are not responsible for their response. You are only responsible for your response to God and the purity of your heart and the honesty of your forgiveness. Let's do that right now.